Uh, thank you for uh, all the, uh, I, I hate to say wishes, but the birthday wishes on my birthday this week. Yes, I did get a year older. I'm not getting older, I'm getting better. What? And uh, as a result of uh, getting one year older, I, you know, you, you begin to think about the reality of your own death as you get older. I'm not 90 yet, but, you know, I'm not anywhere near that. Uh, I'm 39 and holding, okay, so that's where I am. And uh, so anyway, as, as you get to, you know, you get, begin to think about your own mortality, you know, how much longer are you going to live? And uh, I, just, I'm going to live to be 100 just so I can continue to pester some of you, okay? So I'm not going out anytime soon. But, but you know, as you begin to think about that, you begin to think about death. And so as a result of that, that, inf- that, that affected one of my dreams this week. And in my dream, I died and I went, instead of to the pearly gates, to my surprise, there was a large ladder that reached to the sky. And uh, St. Peter was there and he said, in order to get to heaven, you've got to climb the ladder. And I thought, this is odd. I've never studied that in the Bible. And so I must have missed it somewhere in my interpretation and understanding of what Jesus said and the scriptures and all that. So I was standing there trying to reflect and contemplate on that. To my surprise, Mark comes up behind me, you know kind of singing his song and with a smile, you know. And um, he stands there, and we stand there together. And we're both looking up. And as we look up, we begin to then look around, and we notice there's this endless sea of buckets that are filled with chalk. And we notice there are some instructions next to the ladder, and the instructions say, in order to get to heaven, you've got to climb the ladder, pick a bucket with chalk, and as you take a step up the ladder, mark a mark for each sin you committed on earth. And so I'm standing there, you know, kind of scratching my head, contemplating, but Mark, you know, being the anxious guy that he is, he's kind of a musician, so he picks up the bucket and up he goes. And as he begins to tell you, he begins to mark. And so I stand there and I watch him go completely out of sight. Well, I decide, you know, I want to go to heaven and this must be death. And so I pick up my bucket and begin to mark on the way with each step, marking a sin. And I get about, you know, a certain way up and I'm, I'm a little older than Mark. And so I decide I'm going to enjoy the view. So I sit back, you know, on the, on the ladder and enjoy the view. And to my surprise, I hear something above me. And here comes someone coming down the ladder. And it's Mark. And as Mark gets close enough to me, he passes me. And I say, hey, Mark, where are you going? He said, I'm going down to the bottom I said, don't you want to go to heaven? He said, yeah. I said, then why aren't you climbing up? Why are you going down? He said, I need more chalk. Where are you, Mark? You're hiding, aren't you? Where are you? There you are. You know, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And once we've been forgiven, our sins are forgotten. And there is no more record of sin. And unless we have an auditorium this morning filled with self-righteous people, which I don't believe we do, that most of us are well aware of the sin that exists in our lives, the sin that existed that got us to the point where we are to faith in Christ And we are continually and constantly aware of our sinfulness before a holy and righteous God. Last week, we talked about the standard as Jesus elevated the standard. And most of us are well aware of the standard of God. And we know that we don't measure up to that standard. And we're well aware of our sinfulness before a holy God that requires us to meet and measure that standard 
in order to not only attain righteousness required by the character and the nature and the word of God, but a righteousness that deserves salvation. And we struggle with our sinfulness, and we understand our unworthiness, and we know that we are unrighteous. And so we struggle with this whole concept of righteousness and sin, righteousness and sin. And there are some of us in here who spend a lifetime beating ourselves up, and we don't affirm the righteousness of Christ. And there are some of us who overemphasize the righteousness, and we never take an opportunity then to struggle with our own sinfulness. And we have developed then this dichotomy in which we continue to see this struggle, this war, this battle within us all in regard to righteousness and unrighteousness, holiness and unholiness, godliness and ungodliness. And, and there's a, isn't there a battle in your life with all of that? And there are two ways in which we deal with sin. First of all, we can confess it, and that's the proper way to deal with it. We admit that it's there. We ask for forgiveness. We then abandon that by repenting of it, by turning away from it, and turning to Christ and his righteousness for forgiveness. And then we are cleansed by the Spirit, and then we walk away from that sin, committing not to do it again in the power of the Spirit, not in our own flesh, but in the power of the Spirit. Because it says if we submit to God and resist the devil, he will flee. Temptation for the believer is overcomable. It is defeatable. But the reality is that most of us probably, as soon as this morning, have given in to temptation. We've given in to the flesh. We've given in to our depravity, our carnal nature, and our sin is before us, even in the presence of God. And we are aware of unrighteousness and our sin. So what do we do with that? Well, we can cover it up rather than confess it. We can cover it up. And that's what was going on in the contemporary setting of Jesus' day in Matthew chapter 5. You see, they understood that the standard of God was so high, it was so elevated, it was, it was of such magnitude that there was no way in the world that they in and of themselves were, were going to be able to live up to that standard. They knew that it was not a possibility. And so what they did is they then compromised that. They lowered the standard in order to meet their lifestyle. Maybe they didn't like it. Maybe they knew it was unattainable. Maybe the culture had changed, but they diminished it. They lowered it to a level that gave them then the ability in and of themselves, they believed, to be able to live out this righteousness that was deserving of not only salvation, but the kingdom of God. And they walked around claiming self-righteousness. That's not an old problem that's gone away. It's a current problem today in our current culture. For there are many who call themselves Christians who are just as self-righteous today as there were in the day of Jesus. The Apostle Paul was, was very honest and very humble in his aspect about his, about his own sinfulness, his own carnality. I want to read to you in Romans chapter 7 on your screen, verse 13. We see the Apostle Paul being very honest with us. He said, do that which is good then, being dead to me, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what was good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Can you relate to that? Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. You ever felt out of control? 
For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Does that relate to you? For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Sound like a struggle to me. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be the law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Ever felt like that? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What's the solution to our sin? Christ is the solution to our sin. He and he alone is the answer to our sinfulness. And so as we've been discussing for the past two Sundays and now the final Sunday, this third Sunday, how do we deal and how do we grasp this whole concept called righteousness when we are keenly aware of our inability to rise above in our own nature, our own lives, in and of ourselves to the standard that God has set? How do we deal with that? How do we, how do we deal with righteousness, unrighteousness? I know I'm a sinner, yet I know what God's called me to live out in the Christian life, and I just can't seem to sense this whole righteousness thing, I can't seem to grasp it. I can't seem to understand it. Well, we've studied righteousness now for this is the third Sunday, and we're down to the point where righteousness is going to be realized today by the sufficiency of God. It is realized, it is actualized, it becomes reality in your life by the sufficiency of someone outside of yourself. For you do not have what is necessary nor required to rise up to the level of righteousness demanded by the law and by the Lord himself. You cannot do it in and of yourself independently and apart from God. And so because of that, I need someone outside of myself who has done it that I put my faith in that empowers me to live that way and to enjoy that position. And Christ and Christ alone now is that sufficiency that we lean upon. I had somebody said the other day, it would sound like Christianity to me, it is a codependent religion. And I said, so? I am dependent on someone outside of myself to do for me what I cannot do. And his name is Jesus. And unless we're willing to come to that realization, we cannot be saved. Because if you're depending and counting on your own righteousness to stand before God, and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? And you say, because I've done this and this and this and this and this, he's going to say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. And we see in this text the sufficiency of God. Notice it says in verse 20, the one verse we're going to look at today, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That within itself is, is a, is a three-part, four-part series of messages, but we don't have time to that because I need to get on to the next. So in this next hour and a half, we're going to sort of dissect that and see what we got. This has shocked the people that are listening to this. It shocked them. 
Because they had a popular saying in that day, if only two people made it to heaven, it would be a scribe and a Pharisee. Those are the only ones. And they were well aware of their sinfulness, and they were well aware of their inability, their lack to measure up to the standard of God. Only the scribe and the Pharisee, if only two made it, those are the only two. No one else is going to make it. And when they heard Jesus say to them that scribes and Pharisees would not make it and that they would have to then rise to a higher level than the scribes and the Pharisees in order to make it, it blew their minds. It shocked them. It shocked them because Pharisees and scribes, certainly they were going to make it. If anybody was going to make it, them. They knew that they would not, but these religious elite were not going to make it. And if they're not going to make it, then who can make it? That's kind of the idea. And Jesus is saying in this text that we need to depend on someone else. The common person that Jesus is addressing in the Sermon on the Mount was well aware of the reality that they were not sufficient. And that's what righteousness that he's talking about here in the sufficiency of Christ. The righteousness that he's talking about here is that we must take a step. We must take a step toward God in humility. Follow along. We must take a step toward God in humility and admit our sin, and put our faith and our trust and our dependence on Christ alone, who is sufficient now to meet the demands of righteousness and to then impute his righteousness upon us through faith so that we might have a righteous standing before God, gain citizenship into the kingdom, and access to God on the throne and later heaven when Christ returns. That's what it means. Christ alone is our sufficiency. Now, we state that, but do we live that? And the danger is, I think, the longer we live by faith, or let's say by religious practices, those of us who've been Christians for a long time have a tendency to allow the tide to pull us back, back into self-righteousness rather than in Christ's righteousness. There's a, there's a current, there's a culture, and it's called self, and it's called the world, and, and, it, and, and it comes because we live in America, but we, we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We make our own living. We do it ourselves. But when it comes to faith and salvation, it has nothing to do with us. And we have a hard time releasing that because it goes against the natural. It goes against our depravity. It's what brought the fall of Satan. Pride. And here we see that sin is a matter of the heart. And Jesus is about to go through six illustrations in the next six Sundays about how what we need is a change of heart. And the only way our hearts can be changed is through the cleansing of the Spirit of God, the filling of the Spirit of God, and the fruit of the Spirit of God, not the law that comes through sufficiency in Jesus. You cannot live righteous enough to earn merit or deserve your salvation and to gain the favor of God. You either have it or you don't. And it's possessed through faith in Christ, in Christ alone. So let's take a look at the three aspects about the sufficiency of God. First of all, the sufficiency of God is defined first in his word. Notice the words of Jesus in verse 20. I tell you, for I tell you. Interesting, I who is Jesus? Who does he claim to be? 
I am the great I am, who was from the very beginning of time, who was with God, and who was not only the founder, but the creator of the universe and the world that we know. He was a part of creation. He was there with Adam. He was the great I am from the beginning to the end. He now is the word that, uh, the, the word that has become flesh, and he is the divine, the eternal, the omnipotent, the authoritative son of God, co-equal with God. He is God. I, Jesus Christ, son of God, co-equal with God, the, the author of the word and the authority of the word. I, Jesus, tell you, I, Jesus, stop listening to man and listen to me. I think sometimes we put more stock in what men say about God than what God says about himself. And that's what's going on here. For I, Jesus, I, the author, and I, the authority, I tell you, my disciples, I tell you. There's a, there's a problem going on in the text, and Jesus is going to use this seven more times in the address of the Sermon on the Mount. And I don't know about you, but that tells me there's some significance here. Why would Jesus use this seven times? Because, see, see, they had heard something completely contradictory against what the Word of God said and what Jesus is saying. He's saying to them, what you have heard is false. I don't care what you've heard and how you've been indoctrinated and what you claim and believe. I tell you, push that aside and focus on my word and what I'm saying. Listen to me. You see, there was an oral law that was being taught, which many believe, the Pharisees and the scribes believe, that was more authoritative than the written law. Yeah. There, were, there was a group of guys that, that uh, took the oral law that really began during the Moses era. There was a written law, which was the laws of you know, the Ten Commandments, and then there was the oral law. They were the, the interpretations of the law. They were the applications of the law in day-to-day life. For example, first commandment, love God with... How, what? Love God? First commandment? What's the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What does that mean? That had a little discussional debate. What does that mean? Thou shalt not lie. What does that mean? What kind of lie? White lie? Well, what kind of lie? And so the preachers in, 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 before Jesus got on the scene, they sat down and they got amongst themselves and they had a little discussional debate. How do we apply thou shalt not lie? Well, here's 10 ways not to lie and here's 10 ways to tell the truth. And if we'll practice these 10 no's and these two do's, 10 do's, then we'll fulfill the commandment. Sound familiar? Go to most churches today. 10 do's and two don'ts about how to have this and how to do that. And we have a bunch of people that are so busy going around doing, 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 that they forget about the commandment itself. What is authoritative? The, the, the interpretations of the do or the do itself? And you see, they believed that the oral law that was being translated to the people, that's what they were teaching in their pulpits. That's what the people were studying in small groups, not the law itself, but they were learning in these, these, these oral laws that were traditions that were enslaving the people. And they were breaking them away from The original commandment of God. Ten ways how to wash your hands and be cleansed. How much you could do on Sunday and how much you couldn't be on Sunday to keep the Sabbath holy. How many feet you could walk and how many feet you couldn't walk. 
you can only walk to your food and back. Well, you know, if I put food in my house and your house and this house and that house, I could make a pretty good journey just to my food. I mean, I mean, it was ridiculous. And so what was happening here is they were taking the oral law over the written law. And Jesus, as we talked about last week, is reinstating now the word of God back into the original design intent that God gave it when he gave it to his people. Not these traditions of men. He's saying, well, where do we get that? Well, I want you to turn your Bible. It's not on the screen, so just keep the screen there. To Romans, I mean, Matthew chapter 15. I know, turn your Bibles today. Matthew 15. You've gotten kind of lazy with me giving you everything on the screen, so let's, let's open our Bibles today. Matthew 15, verse 1. Look at this example, one example in the Scripture. Matthew 15, 1. Then Pharisees and scribes, the guys that we just talked about, came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they said, Why do your disciples break tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat? That's huge. Notice they ask, they're breaking the tradition of the elders. Now notice Jesus' response in verse 3. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? They were asking, why are you breaking the tradition of the elders? He rebuts by saying, why, do you, why are you breaking the commandments of God for the sake of your traditions? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. We're going to take time to explain all of that because I need to move on. But notice now he makes a correction. But in that correction, after the challenge, he now gives a, con a condemnation. You hypocrites. How'd you like to be called hypocrite by the Lord? Well, did, did Isaiah prophesy to you when he said... This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, not of God, of men. And what Jesus is saying here is that they, like we, need to get back to the word of God. And it is God's word that not only defines the righteousness that we need, and we've looked at it for the last two Sundays, I don't have time to go back, but it is defined in the word of God. And we go to the word of God, and in the word of God, we learn our insufficiency and his sufficiency. And the word of God then becomes our authority. Not what we feel, not what we think, or what anyone else says, but what does the word of God say? And as we come to the word of God and God speaks to us and communicates this incredible, beautiful context of righteousness that's been imputed upon us through faith in Jesus and his atoning, redeeming work on the cross, we stake our lives, our faith, our trust, our hope on his word and nothing more. We've got to get back to the word. Our sufficiency is not defined by the word, but it is discovered by his work. Notice what it's saying in the second part of that verse. For unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. The word unless is an unusual word. It means there's no way on God's green earth is this ever going to become a reality or a possibility in your life. 
It doesn't mean unless, meaning that, that unless I do this or unless I do that, but it means, it is a word here that says, no way, Jose. It ain't happening. It'll, it'll never become a reality. What won't be become a reality? Your righteousness will never be sufficient. He says, unless your righteousness, notice it's their righteousness, it's not Christ's righteousness or God's righteousness. It is a righteousness that is that is received or that is claimed or, or that is, is attained by self-effort, by discipline, devotion, determination, and hard work. So he says, I tell you that unless your righteousness attained in your own efforts, unless it exceeds, the word exceeds is a great word, it means above and beyond. I mean, in great measure. And unless your righteousness not meets the righteousness of the Pharisees, I mean, that would have been enough for the common person to hear that. Hey, guys, your righteousness has to rise up to the level of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. And if you get to that, you'll go to heaven. He says, no, 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 no. Not only your righteousness has got to go beyond that. Not only just one step, but way beyond theirs. And Jesus is about to, to elevate the standard in the Sermon on the Mount to a standard that is impossible for us on our own to meet. And he's going to say here, which is the theme of this whole context of this verse, is that it's basically the, that the righteousness that is required of the followers or disciples of Jesus is greater than that of the Pharisees. It's greater. And if you want to be a disciple of mine and a follower of mine, you must not only rise up to their level, but you've got to exceed that. And he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the scribes are one and the same. A scribe was a Pharisee, and a Pharisee was somebody who basically was a separatist. Uh, there were about 6,000 of them probably during the time of Jesus. 6,000. That's, that's a pretty big band of people, wouldn't you say, who have dedicated their lives to studying the Bible and to studying the law and, and interpreting the law. And, and then after interpretation, they then apply the law to everyday life. And as the culture began to shift and things began to shift, they began to reinterpret the law. And they were always open to new insights and new, new information. They were sort of contemporaries. And so they were looking for new ways to, to make it work. Sound familiar? And then as, as things began to shift and culture shift and influences shift, they would shift the standard. And things were fluid. They were never concrete. And so what they did is they, they, they changed the whole religion that, that, that was endowed by God from sacrifice to legalism. Sacrifice meaning that, that I have a scapegoat. I have a sacrifice. I offer that, that sacrifice upon the altar. It then becomes the atonement for my sin. I place my faith in that sacrifice. It dies so that then through the spilling of the blood, I can be cleansed, which is the reason why Jesus, as we talked about last Sunday, Sunday before, Jesus was the Lamb of God who was worthy to be slain, who came to take away the sin of the world, right? He was the ultimate sacrifice. But what they did is they changed from a system of sacrifice to a system of legalism where they believed you got to keep the law in order to be saved. They changed the whole concept of which God intended. And they believed that they could get to heaven by being righteous enough. And they knew they couldn't live up to this standard, so they lowered it to this standard, a standard that they could live by, 
well, you know, I can take 10 steps today, only 10 steps. And if I take only 10 steps, then I'm going to go to heaven. If I take more than 10, I'm not going to go. So I can take 10, I can count those, and I can feel pretty good about my righteousness. It's called legalism, which we still have today. And here we see that these Pharisees had a righteousness that wasn't sufficient. Why? Because it was external, it was not internal. Because they needed a heart change. Jesus said, hey, I didn't come for for the well, I came for the sick. And you guys don't think you're sick. That's why I avoid doctors. I don't go to the doctor because they find things. I don't want to know I'm sick. These guys didn't want to come to Jesus because they didn't want to find out that they were sinners. They didn't need a doctor. They weren't sinners. They were self-righteous. And their righteousness was external. They put on appearance of righteousness while the whole time their hearts were far from God. Their, their righteousness was also partial. It was not complete. They had come part of the way, but they had not gone to the full scale of the requirements of the law. They were not perfect. Their righteousness also was hypocritical. For Jesus says number of times, you hypocrites, you are placing these legalistic concepts on others when you yourself are not living up to the standard by which you're judging others. That's what legalism does. It turns to hypocrisy in which we're more willing to throw stones at someone else's sin rather to honestly, with integrity and humility, look in the mirror and see our own sinfulness. But I think it was also existential in the sense that it was constantly fluid and changing to suit their own lifestyles. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? You know, I want to live according to this lifestyle, so as a result of that, I'm going to sort of twist and distort the Scriptures to bring it down to the level that I'm currently living so that I can feel good about my life and say, I'm self-righteous. And Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5. I want to look at this verse very quickly. What, what kind of righteousness gets us not only citizenship, but heaven? Paul describes in Romans chapter 5, verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass... Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and, underline this in your Bible, and the free gift of righteousness. It's a free gift. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I don't have to earn a gift. It's free. You know, my kids keep saying, Dad, it's free. I said, no, 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 and nothing, they ain't nothing free. Yeah, 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 it says free. Well, somebody had to pay the price for that. It may be free to you, but it wasn't free to the person who paid. It's free because Jesus paid the price. But it's free to those who by faith trust him. Notice, it is the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass leads to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Verse 20. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abound all the more. Can I get an amen there? So that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's what he's saying. 
And I wish we had time to talk about this, but we don't. It's a message within itself. When Adam sinned, his sin was imputed upon mankind. And when his sin was imputed or transferred to us, we now are guilty of sin, deserving of punishment and death and separation from God. But when Christ came and lived a sinless life and died a vicarious death on the cross and took upon himself our sin against God, God took our sin by faith and imputed it, transferred it, placed it on Jesus. And by faith, we trust him that our sin was placed upon Christ and then he died for our sin. He paid the price. He paid the penalty. Our sin was imputed on Jesus. You get it? Adam's sin and his guilt imputed upon us. Our sin and guilt imputed upon Christ. And now Christ's righteousness, get it? You follow me? Christ's righteousness now is imputed on us by faith. And now we have a position of righteousness that's been given to us by the atoning, vicarious, sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. And now in Christ, we stand righteous before God. How is that possible? Because of grace. Because of grace. Did you know that in Romans 4.16, faith gives us grace? Faith gives us grace. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you are saved through faith, in that it is not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God. Notice, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. You have nothing to boast about except Jesus. Titus 3, 4 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Faith does simply this. Faith does not depend upon my own effort, my own, my own discipline, my own goodness. Faith trusts in and depends only on another who is greater than I to supply what I lack. And when I put my faith and trust in Jesus, I put my dependence upon him. I put my sin upon him on that cross, and he died in my place. And now by faith, I receive grace, and by grace, which is unmerited favor from God, he then bestows upon me what I cannot do for myself, his righteousness. You know, I'm convinced if we can understand righteousness, we'd be more righteous in how we live for him. Faith is void of self-reliance. And faith is totally dependent upon Jesus to provide for us what we cannot provide for ourselves. Wow. We've talked about the work being completed and the work being done. So when we come to faith in Jesus, the work's been done. There's nothing else I need to do in order to be saved. And by faith, dependence upon him, I am now endowed. He now imputes his righteousness upon me. And I stand before God in Christ. It's a free gift. 
cost somebody something. It cost God his one and only son and cost Jesus his death on his, his life on the cross. And all it takes me, for me to do is to reach out in humility, to recognize my insufficiency and put my dependence upon him and him alone as the only means by which I am saved. And he then endows me, he imputes upon me his righteousness. Which comes now to the third thing that I want to talk about. Sufficiency not only seen and defined by his word and discovered by his work, but determined by his will. Determined by his will. Look at the last part of the verse. You will never, he says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's pretty definitive. You who who depend, who rely on, who trust in your own self-righteousness, you think your righteousness is going to get you favor with God and, and citizenship into heaven and, and access to God upon death? If you're counting on that, you who are doing that will never. The word never is a double negative meaning never, never. Never, never, ever, ever. Why? Because it contradicts the will of God. It contradicts his word. It defies the work of Christ. And it goes against what God says in his word. You will never, ever, ever, ever enter the kingdom of heaven. You'll never gain citizenship into the kingdom that Christ is building through disciples, through Christ's followers, and you'll never have access to God, and you'll never go to heaven when you die. It just won't happen. Isn't that pretty narrow-minded, you would say? Well, turn with me to John 14. We'll close with this verse. John 14. As you're turning there, let me say these words. Jesus understands that God is righteous. 100% righteous. He is never, ever, ever wrong. Ever. He's perfect in righteousness. Because righteousness is his nature. And he will never defy his nature, which is righteousness. And because his nature is righteousness, and he is righteous, his judgments are righteous. They are just. He's not like some human judge that you can, you know, go to the court of law and trick and work around things and plead your case to the court and weasel your way out of the penalty. He sees everything, knows everything, holds to the letter of the law, and he is righteous in all of his judgments. He never, ever makes a mistake or commits a sin. He can't. It defies his nature. So therefore, as the righteous judge who has righteously set the standard in himself, described and defined in his word, he will hold us accountable for that standard. And if we don't measure up to that standard, we don't make it. In other words, if you don't possess the righteousness of Christ, you won't make it in and of yourself on your own. You just won't make it. You don't make the grade. A 99.9% isn't 100%, and you don't make it. Notice in Roman, I mean in John 14, Jesus talking to his disciples is the time in which he was sort of gathering his sort of you know, his, his disciples together trying to prepare them for his departure, and they were sort of saddened at the departure and the reality that they would soon lose the physical presence of Christ, and he's trying to assure them and comfort them. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. 
There's plenty of place for everybody. In my Father's house are many rooms. For if it were not so, I would have told you that I go, notice, and prepare a place for you who are my disciples. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. And there where I am, you may be also. Where we hope to be? With him in a place that he's prepared for us in heaven where he will be. In one of these days, he will return for his church. And he will take us with him to paradise, to heaven, to glory. And Thomas said to him, the important question, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And notice what Jesus said. I am the way by which you can be saved. I am the truth by which you can be sure of that salvation. And I am the life by which you are then satisfied meeting the righteous requirements of the law through faith in Jesus. No one comes to the Father but by me. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus qualified himself as the way, as the truth, and the life. And unless we come through him, trusting in, dependent on, reliant on his righteousness, we don't stand a chance. Well, how can a loving God send people to an eternal hell? Because he's righteous. So how do I live out his sufficiency in my life quickly? How do I make this reality in my life? I need to abandon my works. Some of us need to try, stop trying to, to earn favor with God and, and salvation by our own works. You just need to stop. It's exhausting, isn't it? To be good enough? Isn't isn't it, isn't it exhausting? Now, I'm not saying that he says that we're to seek righteousness, and, and, and I'm not saying you shouldn't seek it, but I think we need to stop relying upon our own righteousness and our own works in order to merit, earn it. You, you don't deserve what you have. Secondly, you need to accept his work as the final work and the only work that gains you access to, to him. Your sufficiency is in Jesus and in no one else. You need to affirm that work by living out that reality in your day-to-day life. And then appropriate that work in a sense that we are to, to appropriate it in that we are to make sure that it, it is infused not only in our heads and in our minds, but in the lives that we live and the witness that we project and the teachings that we have. And we are to appropriate that work in every aspect, in, any, in every area of our lives. As we appreciate it. By remembering and recognizing that were it not for his righteousness, we wouldn't be able to stand before God today and sing praises to him. You know, that's what makes this special in here. Did you know that? When we come in here and we're fully aware of our sin and our depravity, our unworthiness, our unrighteousness, and we are fully aware that it were not for his atoning vicarious death on the cross, we would not have the privilege of not only citizenship, but entering into the very presence of God and to at least say, Lord, thank you. I've never understood a church say, thank you, God. Okay. 
You know, that, that tells me that that person has never been reborn again or they are, are totally unaware of what he's done for them and they need to be educated. Because once I'm fully aware of what he's done, I can't help but give him praise, gratitude, and thanksgiving from a heart filled with joy. Well, there's got to be more to the Christian life. Really? What more could we need? For Christ and Christ alone is our sufficiency. And our faith is in him. And were it not for grace, where would we be? If you're in Christ today, you have been imputed with his righteousness. What a beautiful position that we have in him. We're saved, we're sure, and we can be satisfied to live the abundant life that Christ has called us to live. So where do you stand? And in whom are you standing on? Yourself or Christ? Some of us have been trying to do this. Jesus, self. Jesus, self. And we play this little game. It's all Jesus. And it's none of this. It's all Jesus. Why do we keep holding on to self? What a miserable existence that is, isn't it? No wonder some of us are grumpy. Let's pray.